Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. We continue our podcast about the war which Russia started against Ukraine. The series is brought to you by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center to Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. We are making this podcast with Tatyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. So today we are going to talk about Bucha. We visited Bucha on, on Friday a few days ago. Uh, also the, the towns near Bucha, Irpin, Hostomel. We want to share with you some, some of our impressions. We also talked to several people and have, have some stories to share. But also, of course, we will talk about what, what's happening on the front line and what's happening around around this war and traditionally we will also cover some of the topics of russian propaganda and disinformation because it it is changing it uh, it it uh, basically shows us new narratives to which we which have to be prepared because they are targeting primarily russian population but also the population of global south it seems to me this is one of my hypotheses so let's talk about bucha Uh, Irpin Hostomel, what are your impressions? Yes, indeed, uh, we visited Bucha, Irpin, and Gastomel um, one month, one month after the liberation, after the departure of Russians. So we cannot really testimony of what was really happening there. So one month ago, so and clearly enough, the cities are now they look differently from that pictures we've seen uh, in the media. Uh, specifically these images with uh, dead bodies and with all this destruction in the beginning. Uh, all the situation, it looks much better now. But at the same time, um, we see how much really these small towns suffered from uh, from Russian army. Uh, when you travel, when, you tra- when we were entering this direction, the first thing you see after you leave Kiev is this famous Bucha bridge. There are two bridges, and you've definitely seen them in the photos uh, in international media. Bucha Bridge and Irpin Bridge. Irpin Bridge is even much more damaged. And we remember these pictures of people who are under this bridge, completely destroyed, and people try to leave the area by walking, if you do remember that. When, today, when you enter in Bucha by this bridge, you see kind of destroyed a bridge, but you can still pass by in the car. And what you, the first thing you see, you see quite a lot of buildings which are destroyed by all kind of shells. Some buildings are all right, but a lot of them are destroyed. And you also see supermarket, for example, this famous Novus supermarket. We've seen it in previous images uh, during the occupation, which was, uh, it was not shelled, but uh, the, it was um, attacked. Yeah, attacked. I mean, I mean, local people, they took everywhere from this uh, supermarket because there were no uh, other possibility to get food. Um, then what you see when you, you are impressed because Bucha, Uh, when you when you say the word Bucha to anyone, anyone everybody imagines that it, it looks like a, a total ruin and everywhere, everywhere you have dead bodies. But in reality, it looks quite differently. So there are in, entire buildings and entire streets which are almost not touched by this shelling. But at the same time, 
it's difficult to estimate, but my impression, I might be mistaken, but I think about 20% of Bucha's buildings are destroyed or touched by, by shelling, and another 80% is so more or less... I think maybe, ma maybe even less, maybe even less than 20%. It's it's difficult to, but we we drove a lot through Bucha several times, making a kind of circles. Bucha is not big. Let us explain that this is a kind of a city of fifty uh, thousand people, so it's a small small town in fact. And when you travel, you just uh, cross the street and everything is all right, as if it was because of, before the war, and then. Out of the blue, you see a completely destroyed or a building or a building which was in fire, for example, or a part of this building is damaged. So it looks like, and his explanation is that there were no real combats in Bucha. Bucha was occupied quite quickly, and there were no uh, Ukrainian army. I would say there was a territorial defense in Bucha, as people reported, but it was not a kind of professional defense because everything happened very quickly in the first days of war and they were unable to resist to these tanks, to this Russian army arriving. So uh, Russian army... Let's, let's explain a, a bit of geography, right? Mm. Because we have Hostomel, Bucha and Irpin. Hostomel more to the north, Irpin more to the south and Bucha in between. So, as I imagine that in Hostomel, there is this Hostomel Antonov airport to which Russians try to make uh, make landing by the forces and uh, capture the airport. Uh, I don't know if, if they succeeded, partially they succeeded. Well, yeah, partially they were destroyed. The first uh, groups were destroyed, but then they repeated many times and some of them survived. And there were street fights for many days in Hastomel. And of course, the tanks uh, came down from the north, from Belarus. Mm -hmm. So, okay, okay, we are repeating this uh, story that uh, Belarus is a part of the conflict, is a part of the war, because there would be no uh, attack on Kiev if Lukashenko's uh, doesn't give uh, a permission, or I don't know whether he was giving any permission. Uh, Belarus was also occup occupied by Russian army with assent of Lukashenko, and therefore the Russian forces could go down from the north. Yeah, and on the ground, uh, yes, indeed, Hastomel, then Bucha, then Irpin, but there is no space, almost no space between them. So it looks like, you know, if you, for example, travel as we traveled from Bucha to Hastomel, it, it takes you 10 minutes from center of the city in Bucha to center in Hastomel. 10 minutes driving. So this is extremely close, you know. And then if you travel to uh, from Bucha to Irpin, I took this road on, uh, we took this road on our way back. It's look like you, you, you quit Bucha and you arrive directly to Irpin. So it's like one, one agglomeration, one, one urban uh, area, in fact. So it's quite close. And people, what were people also reporting, when attacks started in Gastomel, and in Gastomel it was key, location for Russians because they wanted to to, to, to control the airport to control the airport and then to land soldiers we don't know soldiers tanks and then to capture Kiev so very quickly just to remind to our listeners that in 2014 uh, some Ukrainian military experts 14 15 they were sharing with us plans of Russian attack like full-scale invasion 
And they were also, I remember, mentioning Hostomel Airport as a key, uh, key, strategic, uh, key strategic place. So I think that basically these plans of capturing Kiev through Hostomel Airport, they were quite old in Russia. Mm -hmm. And they just, uh, this time, we were actually looking at these plans with uh, certain, certain uh, skepticism, but now it seems that they really try to but realize what is it. And I remember that we were paying attention to Borispol in the first hours of invasion. We were thinking about Borispol, maybe they will be landing in Borispol, because we know Borispol is the biggest uh, airport in Kiev, close to Kiev. And nobody knew about Gostomil. And even when we talked to people who lived in, who still live in Bucha, few of them knew about what Gostomil Airport is and what what kind of uh, kind of airport is this and what what and they didn't realize the real danger of uh, of living too so close to such an airport. Let's try to compare these two towns. Our impression is that there are more uh, destruction in Irpin and Hostomil less destruction in terms of buildings in Bucha, but on the contrary, there are more, much more deaths in Bucha than in Irpin and Hostomel. Uh, why there is, is a destruction in Irpin and Hostomel? Well, because the major fights were uh, for these cities, because Ukrainians were, you know, trying to liberate Irpin, and from Bucha there, will, there was shelling on Irpin, for example. And Hostomil, we, we already explained this. And, Why? And in terms of people, uh, we know the official statistics now said that in all the Kiev, uh, Kiev oblast, in Kiev uh, region, we have 1,100 uh, 1, uh, civilians who are dead during the first months, first two, two months already. But among these 1,100, uh, 412 are in Bucha. So it, it makes like 30% of everybody died in, in all the Kiev region. We, we, uh, we should mention also Borodyanka, Borodyanka who is to the north, and then many other villages from Belarusian border up to Kiev. So it's a huge area, in fact. And so huge in area because we have this area Bucha, Hostomelit, Irpin, Borodyanka, others. We have the area around Zhitomer uh, Highway to the north. So the, the major highway which leads from the west uh, to Kiev. And there were fights again uh, on, in Makariv and uh, some oh, other, other, well. other villages. We will try to visit, visit them soon. And there was our, our region, which is closer to, to what, where we live, closer to Brovary, Borispil, they were coming from Chernihiv, from Sume, and there are, of course, also so, cases And there. among all victims, 400 are comes uh, solely from, from Bucha. So it means that really human cost in Bucha is really, and it's confirmed by, by figures, by numbers, is higher than in any, uh, in any other place uh, in, in close to Kiev. Let's try to explain why, because... Basically, uh, these northern, northern, western suburbs are the closest to the border, to the Belarusian border. Because if we take our part, like the, the, the east, uh, near Brovary, Borispil, etc., well, it's quite, quite a long way from, uh, from a Russian border near Sumy or from Belarusian border near Chernihiv. This is quite a long way. 
uh, hundreds, I think it's it's how much, it's probably 300, 400 kilometers, 400, right, right, from the Russian border. And of course, there is there are problems with logistics, etc. So they could send much more troops to this northern, northern western border, and, and plus... Uh, if they succeeded in sending troops through uh, th- through the landing air landing operation in Hostomil Airport, uh, so that they could send more. So, w- what does it mean that Bucha has more victims, casualties, civilian casualties? Is that be- because it was really occupied uh, uh, during one month, the month the month of March, and uh, during this occupation? Many things were happening, including the tortures, including the indiscriminate shooting of people, including of you know signs of genocide etc. and rapes as well. And rapes. Mm-hmm. Let, let's and, and try let's, to... also, let's also explain that uh, what re- what was reported to us by our friends who were in Bucha in the first day of aggression is that they understood directly and immediately that the war is happening because even in so it started by you know they saw airplanes f- fight jets uh missiles and all these kind of of war sounds were so much present that population in Bucha people started living directly in the morning most of them because and most of people saw that they will be uh, impossible for them to stay here and they were able to see with their proper eyes what was happening in Gostomil because as we said Gostomil is quite close and it it was it wasn't like we in, in Brovary for example and even in Kiev in in I mean on the left bank of Kiev you just we we've heard several sounds and uh, several missiles but we are uh, unaware of what was what, what the real danger was for us it would take time uh, etc uh, but Bucha people as we said there were 50,000 people in Bucha and, and on the first day most of them left and in the first week uh, at least what what people say in under occupation there were maybe just a couple of thousand people left in Bucha three maybe five it's impossible to say exactly but most of people they were so afraid that they left the city directly so one of the places we went was the church of uh, saint andrew and all the saints uh, near bucha it also uh, apparently near yeah, inside uh, bucha it's inside, yeah yes inside, inside bucha and it's near also uh, the place where our colleague lives andrei kulakov from internews ukraine who also told uh, told us uh, some of the stories he was not the witness of the stories but he he also talked to these people but symbolically uh, this church is also andrew church like our friends and um, and the the priest in this church is also andrew so it's uh, otec andrei uh, so we talked also a little bit with with him, who was uh, during the occupation, and uh, the thing is that there was this common cemetery near the church, where uh, so grave, grave. common grave, yeah, no, no, no real cemetery because the cemetery was blocked. Russians were, you know, cutting the uh, the the access to the cemetery, and uh, there was this com- common grave and around 100 bodies in general was brought to this common grave. Then now they have been uh, uh, ex, how to say it, ex- excavated, at, uh, uh, ex, 
as exhumated, right? And uh, now they are, those bodies who are identified, they have been buried uh, normally in the coffins in this, with the ceremony in, uh, in this uh, cemetery. And uh, some other bodies are still in morgues. You know, waiting for identification. In Bucha and also in other places. In Bucha and I, other as places. we imagine, uh, I might be mistaken, but I imagine that Russians, it was Russian, it were Russians who dug this this big, uh, I don't know, this big grave, and they were putting dead bodies uh, progressively. What do what do you know? What do you know oh. about it? I don't, I don't. I'm not sure it's Russians. I think Russians just permitted it because, to, you know, to uh, they understood that there are many big, uh, many dead bodies, so they permitted this kind of a common grave. And uh, there are many locals, also local Maybe, people yeah. from Bucha and men who who are digging this big, uh, big uh, hole. Yes. Yeah, and people were transporting these dead bodies. Um. So now, but when you visit the place today, you see just the ground, and you see some some rests of uh, which you can you can guess what was happening here. For example, uh, you can see a kind of piece of clothes of somebody. You see some kind of uh, kind of blood, yeah, on that, and uh, and shoes. You know, one one shoe. It, it means that. Uh, Maybe they by while way they were transporting these uh uh dead bodies uh to bury them in the cemetery. Maybe it it was falling out at that moment. Um and we understand that they they are going to to make a kind of monument now because they transported stones. Maybe they will be kind of organizing some official thing for that. Yeah, so what we know, how these people died. So this is common grave of 100 people. Total, there were, there were 420. Uh, to, to these people have died mostly from bullets. This is what uh, Father Andri told us. And uh, this is also gives us an impression what kind of uh, victims there were. So, of course, uh, as we said, there were shellings, there were some... Many houses destroyed. By the way, when we were talking about, for example, these bridges, bridges over the river Irpin. So when you enter uh, this conglomerate from Hostomer uh, to to Bucha, there is this uh, bridge which is destroyed, and also a, a bridge in in the town of Irpin. So why is that? Because when Ukrainian forces, I imagine, were approaching, Russians were trying to, you know, uh, to shell the bridge. Uh, another thing which is very important, also visited two so-called car cemeteries in Hostomel and in Bucha. We also po posted the photos on our uh, Twitter, Ukraine World Twitter, both from Bucha and Hostomel. So you can see a huge number of cars. Well, they are now being already redislocated. Uh, so several dozens of cars in, in, in each of places, and I think there were much more. And most probably these are cars of civilians who tried to evacuate and who were just uh, shot, uh, shelled, you know. And uh, the, the war, you can see, for example, inside there were women, there were kids, there are some, some of the uh, remains of, of their uh, belongings. Mm, many of them are burnt, you know, so they're totally burnt. It seems that, that there were huge tank strikes or, you know, shells. 
and many of them are even smashed uh, as if by you know as a, as a can you know uh, mm. as if they were just run over by a tank or something like that yeah and this is extremely heartbreaking to to look at these cars because you can still vividly imagine what was happening because you see the car a normal car uh, when you drive you have your objects i don't know could it be clothes or any kind of cosmetics for women or any kind of of toys for kids and you see everything in disorder as if people really they took uh, the objects they needed on for the road and they, they took this car they were trying to escape uh, Bucha or Irpino or Gostomil, and they were shot just on their way. And from what we know, um, that cars they they stayed, some cars they stayed for a month, you know, just by the road, and nobody did nothing. Was unable. Ukrainians were unable to do whatever, and Russians they were just leaving these cars. And I mean, dead bodies were were, were staying inside the cars for for the whole month or for several weeks at least. So it is something horrible to see because you just see this moment of the of destruction. When you look at these cars today, you see, you just uh, can't really imagine this this moment of when normal people, as we are, as everybody, you know, just trying to leave the war to to save uh, your life or the life of your kids, and you are just uh, killed on, on your way. And um, we've also seen uh, at least several cars with this white not flag, but a white sign, the white, teaching, white sign maybe saying that we are civilians, yeah, something like that, we are civilians. And we still don't know the exact reason why, um, why really um, they were uh, shelling at this cars. What was the reason? Because it was quite clear there was no military vehicles. It was just normal cars. And it was quite clear that there were people inside, I mean, civilians. What was the reason to kill them on their way? They were of no danger for Russian army. But uh, the problem is that we really see a lot of uh, dozens of these uh, cars in Bucha, and, but also in Hastomil. There is a different place in Hastomil for that kind of uh, cars and another place in Bucha. And maybe in Erpin. Erpin, we haven't seen that, but maybe, maybe it also exists. So on the stories we have heard that <clears throat> there are there were really tor torture rooms because because well, all the all, all the world has seen the bodies with uh, people having their hands uh, tied behind their backs, uh, but it seems that uh, there are several such places where th there were several bodies with uh, with bags on their on their heads, with their uh, hands tied at their backs all killed uh, with bullets into into the heads so maybe uh, maybe the russians were trying you know to disclose a kind of a underground movement or get some information or whatever so they were probably killing one by one so that to to force others to speak and then kill those who are who survived because they didn't want to have witnesses or something like that. Also, um, we know that, uh, well, coming back to these cars, we, we know the stories when there was the whole family in the car, like a, a woman, a man, two kids, three kids, and they were just shelled and killed everybody. Um, th there are stories when people were really put into the underground and just left to breathe some air for five minutes. There were stories when, for example, 
a person would go out of this underground and then shot dead just to to have a smoke and shot dead there was this uh, this idea this uh, this event for example right um and there were also when we asked uh, the priest andrew about uh, the proportion between men and women uh, he told us that there were most um, bigger part of men but uh, also there were women and the children so um the question is why so we asked this question why many many times what does it, what 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 was the reason of all these kills why they were killing even men because they were civilians it was quite clear that they were not military and the element of the response was maybe uh, that they were afraid they were afraid of men they were thinking they would meet kind of nazi fascists or whatever aggressive or maybe military and they uh, felt insecure in Bucha uh, and they, they were trying to eliminate any kind of danger coming from lo- from the locals it cannot explain the same thing uh, for women and for kids uh, but some some women we do know do have evidences of uh, women raped and even um, um, teenagers also in Bucha, many cases. I, I'm not sure for numbers, and this is extremely complicated to talk about statistics because not everybody is uh, able and ready to talk about this kind of crime. But um, yes, really, they were afraid of people, of locals. They were afraid of... That's why they were killing, they, that's why they were torturing them because they were trying to find a kind of comp- complot- complotism or anything against the Russian army. And they were also searching mobile phones, so they were really afraid that people who are staying here were, uh, you know, spying on them and uh, sending the coordinates to the Ukrainian artillery, etc. Which was, maybe sometimes it was the case, but uh, I think most most probably, most often it was not the case, right? Um, what else? We were told the story that uh, some people were killed from this... Uh, uh, how to say it um, the big calibers and and that means that if if it uh, enters your head your head is just blown up and we ha- we we listen to the stories like a person was driving a bicycle or a, a a motorbike and then killed and then this body like this by a sniper and then this body was for several weeks lying lying on the road so this is it. Uh, this is this is the the story of Bucha. Of course, there are many more, but that's what we heard. That's what's what's what we have seen. That's what we can uh, share. Maybe 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 the last one uh, important thing to tell. So, around uh, from three to five thousand people left were in Bucha during the occupation, and other people they left before. And at that very moment, it is extremely difficult to get any kind of testimonies because people who lived in Bucha through the occupation, at least what we've, we were said, most of them, they left Bucha just to, for, for how to say it, for rehabilitation uh, procedure, something like that, just left for several of them. And, but uh, on the contrary, people who left Bucha in the beginning of the war, now they're progressively coming back. It looks uh, deserted at that very moment. Bucha, um, we were witnessed, wit- witnesses of the first supermarket open in Bucha 
there two days ago. The first, not 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 that big supermarket. Before that, you could buy some food in this kind of small shop. So in in uh, in uh, open air uh, markets or exchanging things. Um, there were there were time periods when there were no electricity in Bucha during the occupation. But still, uh, some still some, some uh, districts, for example, we went to this most tragic place uh, between uh, between the street Vokzarna and the street uh, Yablunska, and uh, there are still the electricity networks. They are still uh, cut, so there is no electricity there. Many houses are, are destroyed. Those pictures that you have seen probably there, most probably they are coming from this uh, these two streets. So in some districts there are el- electricity, water, heating, everything fine, everything's fine. In some others there are still no electricity, for example. So it's gradually coming back, coming back to life. Of course, there are some apocalyptic images. Uh, when you enter Bucha on this just crossroad, the the, the bridge between Hostomel and then Irpin and Bucha, I think every house is destroyed. And so our typical way to Bucha, for example, because Bucha and Irpin were also recreation sites, right? People were going from Kiev to have a spa in Grand Admiral in Kiev, for example. Unfortunately, it is now destroyed. Uh, as well, so you you still have these billboards. Have a good spa there, or go to the dancing there, and uh, all these billboards are on this uh, background of of destroyed houses. This is also one of the yeah. But the the overall when you are already in Bucha, the overall impression is that, and we are now in spring, so a lot of flowers, you know, a lot of trees, and it looks like. Uh, optimi- optimistic because you know the sky well, is blue. Care, you know? Carefully optimistic Careful. because well the the town will be soon coming back to life maybe. Uh, we cannot say about this Hostomel or Irpin in Hostomel when we just left the car near this car cemetery. I, I was I was so shocked by the silence, but the the incredible silence because there is no people around, no cars which are passing by. So. And and I imagine that a lot of families uh, whose uh, houses are not destroyed, they will maybe think twice before coming back, because when you pronounce now Bucha, you know it looks like a horrible place, Bucha massacre, you know, and maybe some people will never come back, even if their houses are more or less alright. But just imagine, they will be present there, and they will be imagining I don't know dead dead bodies in streets or something like that. So we are not sure about that. We know that life is much stronger than the death, and the people normally will uh, will will come back. But uh, let's see how it goes in the following months. It's still quite difficult to say if uh, if it will we could imagine this a normal to be a normal place to live. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think I think you you see that Bucha is a, or Irpin Hostomel are really a big big wound, and we don't know whether whether it will be. Well, obviously, life will not be as it were before. So people will be in this. In these memories for for a very long time, and they plan as as I've heard, they plan to leave the bridge near Pink Bridge as it is now, to make a kind of bridge uh, which exists already, uh, just close to this destroyed um, apocalyptic uh, image, and then to make kind of. Uh, 
and then maybe put it under the glass or something like that, just for everybody to remember what was happening here, I don't know, months or years ago. I think it's a good idea. Maybe the same with Epicenter in Bucha, that is this uh, uh, building supermarket, mall. building mm -hmm. mall, Epicenter, and it's totally destroyed. So just uh, just totally destroyed. So maybe maybe do something with, with that, not just rebuilding it, but of course it's a private It's property, impossible. So. I think for Epicenter it is just impossible to rebuild. You have to destruct it and then to build something else. Or you can have a choice to, to leave it as it is and to make a kind of mu museum of Russian aggression or something. That it's, I don't know, maybe it could be a good idea for this memory, I know, for collective memory of how Russian uh, army behaved here in Ukraine and in Bucha specifically. Yeah, so let's talk ab about some news, w what's happening on the front line. The front line is, of course, not around Kiev anymore. It's, it's in the east, and uh, it seems that Russians are trying to approach, to attack, but very slowly. So they're, basically their progress is very slowly. And what we have, what we see from, what we hear from the military experts is that we can really expect Ukrainian counter-offensive soon, because one of the big news of the past week is that Americans are approving the land lease to Ukraine. Yeah, so it's a kind of decisive moment now. A lot of, we are not military experts, but what military experts say, that uh, Russians are already suffering from this lack of energy to attack, uh, specifically in Izum, Izum of Kharkiv region. They were trying to make this real offensive in order to surrender this important Ukrainian group, Ukrainian army on the front line in Donbass. This is a strategic thing, and they are failing at that very moment, they even sent uh, Gerasimov. Gerasimov is uh, the leader, how you say it? The, the, chief, of chief, of, uh, the chief of staff. Chief, right? chief of staff, yeah. Chief of staff there. And he came, it's not confirmed officially, but there are rumors that the, he could be present personally in his Zoom uh, just to, to be present and to maybe to motivate Russian troops to attack. But for at least two, three, or maybe even four days, they are unable to progress in any kind, so no progress of any kind. So, and they are trying. They it, it looks like that they will be weakening their attacks in the coming days, and this is a question of days, or so maybe um, one week, maybe ten days, and their attack will be over. They will be unable, incapable, to continue their offensive. And that will be a decisive moment for Ukrainian army, because at that moment we are receiving a lot of weapons coming from the West, uh, not from land lease directly, but already weapons who were arranged before. And it will be a moment, as experts say, in the end of the May, May, uh, Ukrainian army will be able to counter-attack counter really in all directions. And so, and this counter-attack will be um, decisive for for this war. Yeah, and I think uh, th there is a big change compared to 2014 because in 2014, well, Russians annexed Crimea, but many, many people in Crimea were were maybe supportive of this. Uh, le let's be honest. Of course, not in these figures of the referendum, but if, if a real referendum would uh, would be would be held in Crimea, I still think that 
there will be much more majority will vote for staying within Ukraine under normal circumstances uh, if there is a real fair process, discussion, etc. But the, the, the number of people who would want to separate from Ukraine would be maybe 30-40% or something. The same also with Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, well, uh, there were much, much lesser presence of this. Um, they were much less stronger, these pro-Russian forces. But but when we are now talking about Ukrainian Donbass, Ukrainian government controlled, or especially the south, the Kherson Oblast, which is which, which was is never pro absolutely pro not pro-Russian at all, and uh, we have seen it from, you know, when Kherson people under Ukrainian flags they were going against the the, the Russians, etc. Obviously, and, the, uh, I mean, there was some discussion after two thousand fourteen whether. Crimea or Donetsk and Luhansk, whether they are truly Ukrainian. They cannot be any such kind of discussion now mm -hmm. about Kherson yeah. or about Mariupol or about the south. That, that means that Ukrainians' drive to liberate these territories is much stronger. And that means also that Ukrainians, if and when they liberate these territories, newly occupied, they will not stop on this. They will not stop on the frontier with Crimea or with Donetsk and Lugansk. The big question, military question, is how to liberate cities. I mean Donetsk and Lugansk and Kherson, because it is in this counterattack, uh, from the military point of view, it is much more difficult to liberate cities because it, it means street fights or whatever. And I think this is a big question the uh, Ukrainian army is already thinking about how to do that technically, because without destroy, we, can, we cannot destroy like Russians. The Russians they destroyed Mariupol to take it. Ukrainian army cannot destroy Kherson to liberate it because it it, it would not be liberation; it will be destruction. So it, it, they they should find a way to to liberate it without destroying it. So it is extremely complicated, and this is an extremely big problem for Ukraine that Kherson as a city is occupied because when you liberate villages i i don't know these huge spaces and with small li villages it's much more easy when it comes to big cities like Kherson, it's uh, uh, half a million of uh, I, I guess uh, of people living there it, it's a huge city on two rivers and with big bridge so it, it, it's like kiev you know how it's impossible to take such a big city without uh, massive destruction so, but let uh, Ukrainian army do what uh, it's able to do. Uh, but um, important is to say that Ukraine, today we can talk about this decisiveness of Ukrainian army, of Ukrainian state and of Ukrainian people to continue the war up to victory. So we are not afraid now to pronounce the word victory. And the victory would mean for us, for Ukrainians, the liberation of the whole Ukrainian ter territory uh, in the state before 2014. So it means Donbass and Lugansk and Crimea. Crimea, even if it would be more difficult. Yes, but uh, again, this drive is present and uh, Ukraine is really supported right now militarily by, by the whole free world, but by the whole democratic world. It's land lease, but it, it also means that, uh, uh, you know, American defense sector can be reloading its, uh, its capacity and uh, produce more arms. Uh, 
it sounds it sounds crazy, of course, for all the pacifists in the world. But unfortunately, this is the truth that and and this is what Ukrainians human rights activists are now doing. They ask the West for more arms, human rights activists, because we understand that if there is no military victory right now, it will all come back with any any kind of form. It will all come back uh, again. So Russians will. It's it's very interesting what we will that they will do on the their victory day. It will be already in a week uh, on 9th of May. We'll make a special podcast. About yeah, that, I think about I think we should make a make uh, make a special podcast about this. What what is called Pobeda Besia, this craziness of of this victory myth. And uh, it is also important what what Putin will tell to the nation, to the Russian nation, to the Russians, because he, of course, he can present taking Mariupol as as his, his victory, and he can send uh, say that all this piece of land near the Black Sea it's 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 already a Novorossia, of which he he dreamt of, but the question is whether he will declare general mobilization. And we see we are coming now to the to the last part. We see what's going on in Russian propaganda. We already touched upon it briefly in in this topic in one of our previous episodes, saying that Russians are increasingly, ta- um, you know, presenting this war as a defensive war, as if the, it's not that they attacked, as if they are defending themselves against NATO, against America, etc. Now, one of the narratives is that they try to prevent the Third World War. So it's not that they are starting this the Third World War. Earlier they were saying, look, the Third World War is already going on. It was opening. It was openly said by Russian propagandists that this is a world war, World War Three, etc. Now they are saying, no, no, no. We're trying to prevent it. We're trying to prevent it, and uh, they are saying that the West is intimidating Russia, uh, quote, a standard method of intimidation and a fairly popular topic for Western speculation, end of quote, uh, that uh, that they are basically trying to uh, intimidate Russia with the World War Three, and Ukraine is trying to prevent it. So Ria Novosti, Russia's major uh, propaganda outlet, said that, published an article saying that, quote, Western society is being prepared for the Third World War, end of quote, and... Um, Quote, Western inhabitants are being forced to conclude that a world war is now uh, not only inevitable, but that is already underway, end of quote. Again, as we say, Russians are, you know, they are mirroring what they hear from Ukrainian side and from the Western side. They're just the mirror. It's, it's, it's an ideal but distorted mirror reflection of that. Uh, so, yeah... So Ukrainians are saying that our heroical defense is basically preventing from the f- uh, Third World War because we're trying not to let Russia, you know, advance. Uh, advance. But that's that's what what the Russians say, and they speculate very much on this idea that Poles will occupy Western Ukraine, part of the Central Ukraine. So quote. Uh, the idea of the Polish government to introduce a NATO peacekeeping contingent into Ukraine, uh, which is again guaranteed to lead to the start of the global conflict, end of quote. You know, 
So this is what what's going on. And even Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesperson, said, uh, said recently that, uh, quote, the prevention, prevention of World War III is a goal of the operation in Ukraine. He said this on Sky News. So... To ich aj some problems to understand their logic, but what we see now and surely enough nuclear risks are still there, but what we see from the western reaction during the last weeks they are no more really afraid of of of, of that threats, nuclear threats. And the uh, Russian propaganda is uh, delivering different some sometimes different narratives and different messages for different audiences. So Um, we'll still have a close look on what they are saying just to try to understand what they will do. Yes, so stay with us and listen to our podcast. We will regularly update you on this. This is, was uh, a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. Uh, this series about the war is a common initiative from Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Tetyano Harkova and Volodymyr Yermolenko are with you. Uh, follow us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, YouTube, uh, SoundCloud. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.